You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day. Um, we're, we're thankful that you have revealed your grace to us in your Son and left us, O oh Lord, in your kindness with your Word and your Spirit and the gift of your sacrament that continues to draw us, Lord, into this, to the reality of who you are. And help us today, help me today as I teach. Guide us, we pray, in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, let me get my notes out here. Uh, last week, we, we really sort of dove in on the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Re- recognizing that that before me language can be, it's, it's, it's a, I was looking at it even this morning, kind of a fascinating phrase uh, that can be interpreted in a, in a lot of different ways. Alongside of me, in the place of me, superseding me. Oh, oh, and I think we talked about this last week. All of those probably have a place for understanding what that commandment is. But the first commandment is the commandment upon which the whole covenantal relationship is built. Um, if you were, you know, in 10th century BC, Israel, or 9th or 8th, or you, you picked the time... And you pulled aside, you know, an average, I don't even know what this means, but an average Israelite walking on the sidewalk and said, tell me, what is the covenant between you and the God of Israel? The answer is pretty straightforward. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's, that's the basic covenantal formula. And one could, all, could, could telescope that covenantal formula really through or onto the whole of the history of Israel, that complicated, messy history of Israel that you read in books like Judges, and then Samuel, and then Kings, and if you go all the way to the end, even the book of Chronicles. The challenge of Israel's whole existence is living into God's claim on them to be their God and for them to be His people. Remember Exodus chapter 19, which is a bit of a prelude to the, to the Ten Commandments. I'm making you out to be a kingdom of priests. So the whole people of Israel are called out to be a representative to the world of what covenantal relationship with the God of the universe actually looks like. No other God but me. And there's an inverse of this. The inverse of this is, and if I am not your God alone, this is the whole book of Deuteronomy, if I'm not your God alone, then, and here's the the threat that comes along with the law, then you will not be my people. Um, and, and And when you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets, and you hear Hosea naming a child, lo ami, not my people, all of this sort of complex and disparate literature of the Old Testament at least becomes somewhat more clarified in its view. It's the covenantal formula that provides for us a lens, at least a lens, not the lens, but a lens by which we kind of read the whole of the Old Testament narrative that opens up to us the necessity of God revealing himself in Jesus by the Spirit in time because of that long history, which is not merely the history of Israel, it's our history as well. I think that's, that's the power of reading um, the creation narratives. You look at Adam and Eve there in the garden, and you're like, oh my, Adam looks very familiar. He looks like me in the mirror. That's right. That, that's, the, that's the instinct you're to have. The whole history of Israel as a, as a history of 
of really the failure um, to live into God's claim onto his people. And you're like, well, that kind of sounds familiar as well. Answer, that's right. This is your history as well, which reveals to us the power of, of the gospel in Jesus. So, no other gods besides me. That is at the heart of the covenantal relationship in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. No other gods besides me. So, ranging near the center of Old Testament faith, if we can use that, that term, I think we should, ranging near the center is this understanding of the exclusive claim that God has on his people for them to remain loyal and faithful to him and to him alone. Recognizing that that was countercultural to the moment, right? I mean, think Jonah chapter one. Here they are about to go down in the sea and you have all these sort of pagan sailors on there hedging their religious bets. I mean, that's what the whole Canaanite world did. All right, you, you call on a Shiran, I'll call on Baal, and you go after El, and I'll, I'll go after, and, and the list goes on and on. So they're calling out, hedging their religious bets, because maybe one of you will stumble onto the right one. And then they wake up Jonah from his slumbers and like, well, who do you worship? And I worship the God of Israel who made the heavens and the sea, which is kind of a pointed moment. And by the end of Jonah 1, we find these pagan sailors, think about this, who are calling out to Asherah and, um, and Nimrod and Marduk and whoever else they were calling out to. By the end of Jonah chapter 1, they're making vows, worshiping and sacrificing to Jehovah on the deck of a boat in the middle of this. It's remarkable. So here you have these pagan sailors that are living into the dynamics of the first commandment. No God but me and me alone. So that's foundational. Now when we move to the second commandment, and the goal today is um, to look at commandments 2, 3, and, and 4. Uh, so we're going uh, to work through these, uh, these, four, these three commandments today. Recognizing that the commandments... And I know this is kind of 101, so forgive me for repeating this. But the commandments are understood in terms of two tables of the law. Um, this is kind of a fun history, even in our own um, in our own tradition. If you go back to sort of early forms of the Book of Common Prayer, even say like 1662 and before, um, when you were in a Holy Communion service, you would have all of the Decalogue read. Everyone was, and Lord, uh, forgive us and let us walk into your, your, your healing. I mean, that, that was the language. Now, in the tradition that we're in at this point in time, that's been reduced, right, to the two tables of the law. And you, we hear it regularly around here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then we respond as a congregation, Lord, have mercy. Um, so the, the reduction of the law and all of it in ten, the ten words to loving God and loving your neighbor, that's a, a kind of nice way of understanding these two tables. So, the, so today, I'd like to kind of wrap up, if possible, the first table of the law, which is the loving the Lord your God. And then the second table of the law is where we'll spend the rest of our time moving into a little bit in June uh, uh, as we finish out the series. So uh, the second commandment, may I read it to you? I mean, the first commandment is pretty simple. And it's, I mean, even though there's some complex grammar in there, no, no other gods but me, period. Well, got that one. Then it starts to get a little bit more expansive. Uh, verse four, here's the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, 
am a jealous God. Now, okay, I'll stop for a second. Um, je- when we hear the word jealous, I think, given our, our modern use of that term, we, we think, um, uh, or at least I can think, sort of petulant, uh, short-fused, um, uh, unrequited love, you know, the, the sort of thing that, that no one wants to see out in public. Like, you know, don't, 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 don't express your jealousy in public. It's just kind of unbecoming. I think that's what we tend to think with that term. I, I would like to actually replace this term jealous if I were translating this with zealous. I have a zeal for you. I'm a zealous God. And, and, and the zeal is for himself and his glory and, this is so important, and the good of his own people. Right, so it's, it's it's not just sort of self-focused with our God; it's self-focused in a way that has the healing properties for His people as well. I'm a zealous God, I'm, I, I, and I inflict punishment of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. But I show favor to the thousands, and this language will come up later in, in Exodus, to those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, so. Here we have a prohibition in the second commandment against idols for worship. Now, this is worth just sort of sort of knowing. Um, we, in our tradition here, we, we tend to follow a Protestant, Reformed, for lack of a better term, um, numbering of the Ten Commandments. Um, you, you might be surprised, and sir, many of you know this, you might be surprised to find out that Roman Catholics and Lutherans they order their Ten Commandments a little bit differently so that Commandment 1, you shall have no other God beside me, and what we call Commandment 2, the prohibition against making images for the purpose of worship, are understood as one commandment. Um, so you're like, okay, right? That, I, I, can, I, can, I can see that. Well, where do they get 10 then? Does that leave them with 9? No, because when you get to the last commandment on coveting, They'll make a distinction between coveting for your neighbor's wife, number one, and then number two, coveting your neighbor's material goods. So they split the coveting um, commandment at the end um, and combined this prohibition against um, images at, at, at the beginning. A lot of history here. Actually, some complicated grammar to sort of think through this, though I think, I don't know if I go to the guillotine over this, but I'm pretty persuaded that the sort of Protestant reformational tradition that our church and, and tradition is a part of probably has the grammar on their side on this one, at least the way in which the, the commandments are ordered. So here we have a, a second, we'll, we'll just stick with it here, a second commandment that's related and meant to safeguard the foundational first commandment that we've already had expressed to us, no other gods besides me. It's the injunction against making images for the purposes of worship. So let's think of this in in a couple of ways. Number one, there's a prohibition against idols for worship. And number two, there's a prohibition um, to have images that replace the Lord himself. Now this takes, this is some tricky business here. And there are uh, massive divisions in the history of the church on these kinds of issues. Um, and let, let me, let's just be clear, right? We just came from a nave, a sanctuary, where we got some stained glass and got a picture of Jesus in the, in the, in the chancel and pretty carvings are around. Right? So we, we're, th- there's some challenges here. I remember when I was on staff at a church in South Carolina, um, we, we uh, uh, 
let a local Reformed Baptist, so this was a very sort of a Pur- Puritan sort of oriented uh, congregation, come to our church and borrow it for a conference. I'll never forget this. And they put a veil um, over the cross that was at the front of the church because they understood that to be a prohibition of the second commandment. Um, and if you sort of press through sort of the history of the church, especially into the period of the, of the of early sort of Byzantine iconography and icons, this is this is sort of big controversial stuff. So, and, and and I promise you, we will not unpack all that this morning. I give you my word on that. Um, but I think it is somewhat clear here, though, though working this out as a challenge, it's somewhat clear that the idea here is an injunction against um, the making of idols or likenesses for the purpose of worship. That, that's, a, that's an important, I think, clarifying understanding here. Why? Well, listen to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. I love this verse, by the way. It's one of my favorites. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, verse 12. This was the law given a second time. Verse 10 says, Remember the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may have them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. And then you came out and you stood at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai and the mountain there was burning with fire to the heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, thick gloom. Remember that? Then verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. So the Lord spoke... From that fire on Mount Sinai, you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. And then there's this little clause, there was only a voice. So there's this understanding here of the, of the inability to capture the essence of God's being in um, material form. This is, what, this is what makes Israel's God distinct from the Canaanite mythology and religions of the surrounding cultures, whether it's Baal or El or you, 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 Ashtar, you name it. Um, it's not surprising, by the way, and I think you know, this has caused trouble for, for Bible-believing folks like, like you and me, but um, it shouldn't be surprising when archaeologists dig up stuff, in the, say, in the Northern Kingdom, and they find iconographic representations of Jehovah with his wife, Ashtar. I mean, that, that, the, the queen of heaven stuff that Jeremiah warns about, do not worship the queen of heaven. I mean, all of this sort of stuff that's built into the mythology of the ancient world had found its way seeping into even the religion of the northern kingdom so that the Lord, Jehovah, was presented in iconographic form with his consort or his wife. And here you have um, Deuteronomy and you have Exodus 20 saying there's a prohibition against that. There's a warning against that. Listen to these words from the prophets could be snarky about this stuff. I kind of like that. Um, Listen to Isaiah chapter... 44 verses 9 through 20. This is Isaiah going after the jugular, and it's kind of funny. Um, Those who fashion an idol are all futile. Their treasured things are of no benefit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or to know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no benefit? Behold, 
All of his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them be put to shame together. And now he's going to go after the jugular. The craftsman of iron, he shapes a cutting tool, and he does his work over the coals, and uh, think forged and fire, for you to watch that on Netflix. Uh, he, um, he, he gets hungry, and his strength fails, he drinks no water, becomes weary, and and then the craftsman of wood, he extends a measuring line and he outlines. You get what he's doing here? It's like p- trades, tradesmen, that, this is what they do. They get some iron or they get some wood and they start to make things. It's a human achievement. Carving knives, outlining it with a compass, makes it look like a form of a man, like the beauty of mankind, so that it may sit in a house and, and here you go. He will cut some cedars down for himself and he'll take a home oak or another oak and let it grow strong for himself among the trees of the forest. He, he plants a laurel tree and the rain makes it grow. And then it becomes something for a person to burn. The tree gets big enough so that he takes one of these trees and then he gets warm by it. Makes another, takes another one of these trees and makes a fire and then he, he bakes some bread with it. And then he makes a god out of the same tree and he worships it. And he makes it a carved image and he bows, bows down before it. Half of it he burns over the fire. Another half he eats meat with it. He roasts the roast and is satisfied and he warms himself and he says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And, and then with the rest of the same tree, he makes it into a god, a carved image, and he bows down before it and he worships it and he prays to it and he says, Save me for you are my god. I mean, can you hear the snark in that? Like, here, here's the man with his, you know, oak um, orchard in the backyard and been waiting on that tree, and the tree comes to maturity, and he goes out, and with one of it, he keeps him, part of it, he keeps himself warm at night, and another part of it, he, he feeds himself at night, and then the other part, he carves out of it a God and says, you have saved me. It's, a, it's the absurdity of it that I think Isaiah's trying, trying to point out. So, what do we have here in this prohibition of the second commandment. The danger is seeking to find God on our own ways or in our own way or, or according to our own ter- terms. Um, it's the danger of recognizing that tools of worship can become um, objects of worship. This, this is worth talking about a little bit, especially even in our tradition, because um, we, we know, for example, in the construction of the temple, you had carved images in the temple. Cherubim and seraphim and, um, and other carvings that you see. If you've been to any synagogues, those of you who've traveled to Israel and seen a synagogue from the first century that's been uncovered, you'll see representations there in tiles and mosaics on the floor. So we have to sort of wrestle with, the, with what this sort of injunction against images is, given the fact that Images are actually prescribed in the Old Testament in terms of aids for worship. So I think what we're sort of leaning into here is the the tension that this commandment leaves us in with the rest of the Bible between recognizing that objects can be aids for worship, right? They can be aids, but there's always a danger of taking an aid and turning it into an end, And we see that regularly in the history of Israel. For example, when Jeroboam goes to the northern kingdom and he establishes the tabernacle there, he builds, I mean, I don't know what committee meeting this arrived out of, it's not wise, but he built two golden calves. 
Now, it's quite likely that the golden calves were meant to be pillars upon which the ineffable and indescribable divine presence would then rest. But what do we know about the history of those two calves in the history of northern Israel? And we see it in the book of Exodus as well. They became objects of worship. Here's another part of the story in Exodus that I think is somewhat shocking, or at least surprising. Those, the, 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 uh, the golden calf incident that's so famous. What did, uh, what did Aaron understand the golden calf to represent? The Lord who rescued you from Egypt. So in other words, this was meant to be something that aided them in their worship, but it was the direct prohibition of this, because now what could be an aid ended up being an object of worship. You remember that King Hezekiah in the book of Kings actually, and this is, again, a stunning thing when you think about it from the standpoint of the history of Israel, took the, the um, bronze serpent that Moses had fashioned and formed in the wilderness that was the means of their salvation in the book of Numbers. But over time, that bronze serpent became um, a talisman. It became a, 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 a feature of Israel's superstition. It became an idol. And what did Hezekiah do? Can you imagine this? He destroyed the bronze serpent. So I think the challenge of this commandment is to recognize that that which God gives us as gifts, even in worship of Him, can turn into objects of worship themselves. And that's the tension that I think we're left in. So two, two final things here on, on this second commandment. Number one is a recognition of our tendency to wish to master God, um, to set Him in our own terms, to, to make Him more manageable. If I think of God in terms of a golden calf, even if I'm thinking merely metaphorically um, in terms of His strength, well, I've now captured him in such a way that I can master him rather than recognizing that the God of the Old Testament is a voice and a presence that cannot be mastered. So our tendency, and I think we all feel this, right? I mean, let's get away from, I mean, I don't think anyone's in their backyard here, you know, forging out little figurines to worship with the family tonight just to hedge your religious bets. I realize that we're in a different world now. But, but, but the, the tendency, whether it's through our theology our theological systems, whether it's through, and the list could go on and on, our tendency to want to master God so that we can control God rather than to recognize Him as the God revealed in Scripture and the Word, that is a tendency that I think we all, all live with. We want to make God in, in our own image and, and to master Him that way. And then secondly, of course, is the, is the tendency um, to replace God. So our tendency is to wish to master God, and the number two the tendency of this uh, second commandment is our tendency to replace him with, with an alien or a foreign god. All right, number three. Uh, uh, not number three. Uh, the third commandment. Let me read this one to you. I'm conscious of our time. Uh, you shall not uh, take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. In vain. Um, even in our legal system here in the United States, we put hands on Bibles and we say things like, so help me God, right? That whole tradition of even built off of English common law is sort of riding, it's trading off of this commandment here of not taking God's name um, haphazardly. 
Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 speaks about the name of God or not taking the name of God in positive terms. This is what it says here. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him or serve Him and swear by His name. So you're serving Him, you're worshiping Him, and if you are going to swear on something or take an oath, you do so positively by His name, because to do so is to take it with the utmost seriousness. I think that's this whole notion of not taking um, God's name in vain. Um, so th- this whole uh, notion about not taking God's name in vain, let me just give sort of three reflections on this. Number one um, is the danger of misusing that which has been revealed. So here, here, here we're misusing that which has been revealed by either taking it in too light a way or in a trifling way. Um, now, of course, you know, in the, in the Jewish tradition, this was taken very seriously, so much so that the name Yahweh um, was not ever pronounced publicly. Let me think about that. To the point that at some, at some point in time in Israel's history, its religious history, they didn't even know how to properly pronounce the name anymore because out of respect for the divine name, they did not, they did not even say it. They would replace Jehovah with another Hebrew word, Adonai. Which, by the way, is where we get the word Jehovah. You take those four Hebrew letters, you slap the vowels from Adonai, you combine them together, bada bing, bada boom, there you have Jehovah. Um, so that's the idea here behind sort of the, the, the respect for the divine name. But um, and, I, and even at Beeson, I, I don't make this a religious principle. Sometimes I'll kind of make somewhat light of it. And I probably shouldn't. But I encourage my own students. Like when we're reading through the Hebrew text and we get to the Tetragrammaton, Jehovah, the four letters, uh, you're not, not going to get struck by lightning. All right? But just as an act of respect, let's replace that with Adonai and not say the divine name out loud. So there's this, there's this injunction to not take the, the, um, the things of God uh, lightly. Uh, number two... Um, uh, the name of God is related throughout Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy as well to oath-keeping. Now, and, and this is, this is a, a, a very a significant matter. When, when one takes an oath or a vow and does so by attaching it, the Lord's name to it, this kind of so help me God that you have within the legal system, um, it's meant to under, be understood that this is of the utmost significance as it pertains to honesty and truth-telling. I mean, I think that's, that's the idea of not taking the Lord's name in vain. Um, there's a tendency, I think we all know this tendency, even within our own world, to, to treat the name of God lightly. I, I, by the way, would think about the name itself here, particularly being Jehovah, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, but in the Christian tradition, we know that the name of God is revealed to us in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is particularly revealed in the name Jesus Christ. So this whole sort of understanding of the name and the danger of taking the name in a trifling or, 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 a, or an overly light fashion, I think moves very naturally from um, Jehovah to Trinity um, to, to, to Jesus Christ. And, and I'll, I'll let you sort of think through, you know, what some of the implications um, of, of that are. Now, our final one, because I, I do want to, I'm rushing through this. The Sabbath in one minute. 
Um, and we'll come back to this um, because we will have to. Uh, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Um, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male slave, your female slave, your cattle, all your residents who stay with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. For that reason the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Of all the commandments that we have in the Ten Commandments, this is the most controversial. What role does Sabbath keeping still play in the life of the believer? Um, it's a big question. Um, let, let me just say that I do think that a Sabbath principle still exists in the sense that um, the Sabbath um, as Jesus told us, was given to man. And those man's not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift that's given to man, and it's done for, so for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, the Sabbath is a kind of bridge command between the first table of the law and the second table of the law, loving your neighbor as yourself. It's a warning that's built into the very fabric of the world and the way in which God constructs time um, not to exploit our neighbors for um, various entrepreneurial ends. Our tendency would be to work people seven days a week. I mean, I think that's the idea. But there's a day that's, that's meant to be given as a hiatus and a break from that so that you can tend yourself to the worship of the living God. That's what real rest is. Now, again, I'm all for... The Sabbath principle in the sense of if you like taking naps on Sunday and I mean, what, what I mean, you're, I'm all for that. But the idea of rest in the Bible is not a passive thing. A true rest is found um, in Christ Jesus alone. Go read Hebrews four for a little homework this week. The true rest is found in Christ alone. And what we do week in and week out, one day a week, is reorient ourselves by God's grace to our ultimate rest in Him. So number one, we're, we see that the Sabbath tells us we're not defined by our work. That, that, that's not, that doesn't define who we are. We're defined primarily as those who are for God. And we cease from our labors one day a week to reorient ourselves to our ultimate being. And, and the second thing, too, is the seventh day of creation is, and I'll use the kind of $100 term here, it is eschatological. I mean, Augustine and Luther, very good on this when they're reading the seven days of creation. What happens on the seventh day of creation? God ceased from his labors. He rested from his labors. And of course, we know that that doesn't mean that God finished the six days of creation and you know, yawned real big and said, I am pooped. You know, let me take a nap. God's not exhausted by the exertion of creation. He's ceasing from the activity of his labor, and from the seventh day of creation, he oversees his creation toward its ultimate end and prepares for you and for me to enter into the seventh day of God's existence forever. This is why Luther and Augustine, and really the, a lot within the tradition, understood that if Adam and Eve hadn't taken the fruit, there was still something more for them. Namely, entering into the seventh day of God's existence, that mode of being. So you have eschatology built right into the seven days of creation itself. So that when we come together, and we'll have to talk another time about moving from Shabbat on Saturday to the Lord's Day. That, that's a, another big conversation. But 
The principle of Sabbath that's given to us is week in and week out, we are reminded about where our ultimate existence is actually headed. The Sabbath has an eschatological principle to it with time ordered toward our ultimate existence um, with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And we need that. I mean, especially for those of us, and we're all, I mean, everyone says we're busy. I mean, we just, we just sort of live in that kind of world. Um, and, and here we have a day like today that you might not know this, but what you're doing in church and what we're doing in here might not feel like it, but from a biblical theological perspective, we are resting together. We're reordering our, our identity again together, knowing that we are gods and we're built for him. We're not fundamentally identified by our work. We're fundamentally identified by the way in which we relate uh, to him. We'll talk a little bit more about the Sabbath next time. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, these words. I pray, Lord, that you'll draw us into their, um, their life-giving health. Lord, a form of existence that, that calls us, Lord, away from the sirens of this world into a mode of being that you have patterned for us in your own son. We're so thankful, O Lord, that you don't relate to us according to our keeping of the law. You relate to us in your son and invite us, O Lord, by your grace into those green pastures of a form of existence that, that shapes us into knowing that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Let us find true freedom in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.